Uh, we resume our series of messages on the book of Habakkuk last week. Uh, I hope you, like me, enjoyed having uh, Reverend Michael Chance uh, share his message about grace from Philippians 4. Um, we return to a darker subject uh, in this prophetic writing. Uh, if you recall, we've been considering um, the idea of worldview in a number of different ways. Uh, definitionally, worldview is how a person sees uh, their world or existence and humanity's role in it. And we can get more granular and talk about the circumstances slash events that are going on in the world as uh, another perspective. Um, the word view indicates that a person who possesses uh, that view applies a subjective um, filter slash interpretive lens that affects uh, what conclusions are drawn. Um, and we may need to align our worldview with uh, God's uh, new world. Uh, so in week one, um, Habakkuk expressed his worldview that injustice and wickedness had made his country a mess. Uh, why wasn't God doing anything about it? Uh, in the second message, God responded. In acknowledging that Habakkuk's world might seem intolerable, but in actuality, Habakkuk had seen nothing yet. God would raise up and send the unstoppable Babylonians. Uh, God, in his greater unstoppability, would force the Israelites' hand by uh, decimating his own chosen people in order to actualize a new heart, a new relationship, and a new world. God's unstoppable purpose, love, and justice would drive this agenda forward. So let's uh, review our sermon series plan. Uh, I've talked about October 4, October 11. So today, uh, our worldview. I think I got the date wrong. It's October 25, sorry. Our worldview, in incomprehensible. That's our kind of our topic for today. And then in the following weeks, we'll look at God's response. Uh, we'll break that up into unforgettable and indescribable, and then uh, Habakkuk's conclusion of how he can stand firm in faith, right? He's in, imperturbable. Yeah, certainly, uh, it's the long game, uh, so to speak. God was not looking for a quick fix, um, he had lessons to teach and sovereignty, sovereign purposes to accomplish. Right? God knew that by talking about the Babylonians, Habakkuk would be rocked by that announcement. And our verses that we read today confirm God's prediction that Habakkuk would fall deeper into an existential funk when he heard about the Babylonians. Um, he is discomfited, uh, if, if not discombobulated, completely by what God says. Habakkuk's response, you know, prima facie, is diplomatic and reverential. Uh, his outspokenness in the first four verses is a little more tempered now in the particular uh, address we read in verses 12 to 17. He's more measured, if not more respectful. I think he's trying to appeal to God's better side in an attempt to show the incongruity of what God was saying that he was planning to do. But my take is that underneath that apparent calm demeanor, Habakkuk was actually struggling. 
um, with the incomprehensible nature right, of God proceeding as planned. And as I read this text over and over, I kept thinking, well, what's really bothering Habakkuk? Certainly he's disappointed with God for letting things spiral the way they did. And then the solution, God's response, seems so misguided. Right? Uh, maybe, maybe there's some bitterness too on Habakkuk's end for exalting the hateful Babylonians. So I wanted to organize uh, the rest of the message today in terms of like three issues, what issues um, Habakkuk seems to have with God. You know, what's making God's response so incomprehensible? So from verse 12, um, God is too serious. He's, he's out to, you know, do something uh, very severe. Uh, verse 13, God is too pure. He's too pure, too holy, too righteous to dare um, engage the Babylonians. And then in the last few verses, God is too lenient. Right? He is letting the Babylonians get away with murder, literally. Let's say something like that. Okay, so let's uh, look at the first one. One thing is clear, Habakkuk is convinced that uh, God is serious about what he says he would do. God had appointed and ordained the Babylonians to execute judgment and punishment. You know, Habakkuk does not question that God has said this and is planning a calamitous fate uh, on the nation of Judah. In that sense, uh, Habakkuk is taking God very seriously. You know, sometimes, you know, we are not that faithful. Um, we are more selective uh, in what we tend to believe or not believe. So if God says something that kind of jibes with our worldview or our preference, something that makes sense to us, something that we want, then sure, we'll praise and thank God, we'll, you know, exalt him. But if he says something that bothers us or, or conflicts or hinders what we want in our belief system, then we tend to be more, I don't know, we tend to be more dismissive, we ignore what God says. We might even scoff, like, come on, are you, you know, are you serious? <laughs> kind of thing at what is being proclaimed. Yeah. Um, I remember an incident when I was uh, a kid, probably like 10 or 11. Um, I recall a dispute between my father and his brothers. Yes, uh, four younger brothers about how to pay respects uh, to my deceased grandparents. I don't recall the exact details, but I think on a matter of principle, uh, my father was saying something like that. He would rather not go through the motions of something, right? If everybody didn't really have, um, didn't want to have the right attitude or do what's right or, or really kind of, you know, have, do something meaningful. He didn't want to bother with it. So I think he said that he would boycott uh, attending a gathering until, you know, my uncles and other relatives' attitudes changed. And this is what I remember best. One of my uncles, my dad's younger brother, instead of addressing the merits of what my dad was saying, like were they talking about, you know, whether it should be serious or, or, or not, that kind of thing, uh, he started to, I think he tried to kind of guilt my dad, guilt trip my dad. And I remember my uncle kind of speaking in kind of a parental scolding tone, right, to my dad. 
even though my uh, uncle was younger, he said something like, hey, that's kind of Korean, like a Korean parent talking to kid. Hey, don't be like that. Hyungnim, Hyungnim is older brother, right? So he used an honorific address, but it was kind of like, hey, why, why you do that? And unfortunately, I don't recall the exact outcome. <laughs> I don't know if that worked or didn't work with my dad, but my point is that my uncle didn't take the possibility of what my father would do seriously. Yeah, I don't know why this incident stuck with me for so long. Uh, I somehow retained this memory as, as, as an example about, you know, maybe missing the point of what someone's trying to say, and you just kind of like, you know, push them, push them to the edge, right? Uh, Habakkuk is not like that. To the contrary, he's actually quite fearful. He's afraid that God will indeed follow through with what God has stated. God's not being facetious. God is not testing Habakkuk or the Israelites. This is going to happen. But in Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's mind, it definitely should not happen. It's unbelievable that God is going to forsake his covenant people. You know, therefore, God, is, uh, God takes attack of uh, Habakkuk, sorry. Habakkuk takes attack of appealing to God's better judgment. Habakkuk is trying to persuade God of the folly of the plan. So he cites six of God's names and attributes. He's making the argument against the character of God to hopefully deflect God's apparently firm will. Right? Habakkuk first brings up God's everlasting nature. Um, in that same verse, uh, the latter half, he says something interesting. After saying, my Lord, my Holy One, Habakkuk makes the assertion at the end of verse 12, we will not die. And it's a, it's a curious phrase uh, to, to, to do that, right? We will not die. I don't think he's saying that, you know, the Israelites are too strong or too good or whatever. He's just saying that they can avoid or escape death or that it's a refusal to die, refuse to die. I don't think Habakkuk is saying that. I think if what he's saying is, we are your people. God, you are everlasting. That's your nature. And you have a permanent covenantal love with us. So that means that if you are there and you love us, you know, we can't be wiped out. We will not be wiped out. I, I read it more like, may this never be. May we never die because of your uh, in, in eternal nature. God, uh, Habakkuk cannot see or at least cannot agree that God's decision to employ the Babylonians in this way is really the best uh, thing for God to do, let alone for the Israelites to undergo. Yeah. So Habakkuk means that since God is eternal, God's people should also endure and prosper. Yeah. God's promises to Abraham and to David, these were eternal. They were at the heart of Israel's faith. Thus God you know, cannot carry this out. God's people have to survive. May it never be. Um, hey, God, don't do that. Give up this plan. Be nice to us. Something like that. That's what I was thinking. Yeah, have you ever been in that kind of situation where, you know, God says something or he seems firm on doing something, or taking something away, changing something that is precious to us or important to us or, you know, even to him, it seems. So, it's hard, or we don't actually don't want to take God seriously. But in this situation, you know, um, he's clear. He's going to do this, right? Whether Habakkuk uh, 
uh, wants it or not, whether the Israelites are ready or not. Uh, on the Habakkuk's second issue, God is too pure. So Habakkuk continues with appealing to God's character and nature by highlighting God's purity and holiness. In Habakkuk's mind, it would be incomprehensible for God to side with the Babylonians. He cannot understand why God was associated with a people so treacherous and irredeemable. You know, because of the reputation which God freely acknowledges as terrifying and wicked, Habakkuk tried to point out the incongruity of allowing the Babylonians to lay waste to the chosen people of God. Yeah. So this is kind of a, a deep dive, you know, literally in terms of direction for Habakkuk, uh, to question the moral infrastructure of God's world. So in Habakkuk's mind, God stands at the pinnacle of holiness and rectitude, right? God is truth. He is righteous. He is holy. So because of God's lofty perch, he, God cannot tolerate wrong or treachery or wickedness. So to engage with the Babylonians would be a breach of uh, that transcendent plane of righteousness within which God dwells. So one step down, further down um, in that hierarchy, Habakkuk might allow for uh, people who seek righteousness uh, and live according to the law of God to the best of their abilities. Perhaps um, he would locate himself in that you know, lower tier, uh, in that swath, right? And then maybe below that would be the Israelites who were messing up. They certainly were not blameless. Their ways were unjust and worldly, um, thereby you know, prompting Habakkuk's initial complaint um, in the chapter. But in Habakkuk's mind, there is even a lower rung. Right? I can't get it on the camera. <laughs> lower rung, the lowest, the nether regions of his moral ladder. And that is where the Babylonians, they're the lowest in that vertical spectrum. They're at the bottom of the moral food chain, if you will. Therefore, he cannot comprehend why God would allow God's hands to be sullied with connection uh, with the Babylonians. Okay. Perhaps this will, it meant something like this, right? We have God at the top and then righteous people like Habakkuk, right? Then the unrighteous people like the Israelites who are causing the problem. And then if, you know, maybe I should have put a, like a big space, Babylonians, <laughs> they're, they're, at the, they're at the bottom, rock bottom. Habakkuk is unable or at least unwilling to apprehend the thought that the Babylonians, um, such an abhorrent instrument as the Babylonians, could be used by God to accomplish God's just purposes. You know, we already mentioned um, during my message, my last message, that um, I think we think that God is able. The point was that God was able to use unjust means, because ultimately He will not leave the injustice unaddressed. Right? Now the time frame might be elongated to the end of time, to the day of reckoning, judgment day, for all people who've ever lived on the face of the earth, but God is going to judge the Babylonians. It might be way, way down the line, or evil people. Uh, and so he's justified to put such forces and agents to work in his sovereign, uh, in his sovereign plan. So that's what you know, we talked about last time. Uh, if you think about it, though, at least to me, 
it almost sounds like an ends justifies the means argument. Like if God's going to make everything okay at the end, then what he does along the way, it can't be scrutinized. It can't be criticized by human judges. The delay actually for the Babylonians is not the end of time, though. They get their comeuppance a few decades later, right? They get crushed in turn, right, by, uh, by Cyrus, the, per the Persians. Um, they become God, the Persians become God's anvil of justice. Still, right, it may stick in, in, our, in our craw that God would seem like he, God, God's saying, I can use any means that even might smack of illegitimacy. Because I'm God, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna judge the world anyway. So that might be tough for us to kind of stomach sometimes. But I began to think, like, okay, if I have an issue with God using illegitimate agents or forces to do righteous acts, then what kind of instruments should He use, or can He use? I think uh, my sense of indignation, your sense of indignation, Habakkuk's sense of indignation that God would use unholy vessels implies that, oh, there must be holy vessels, acceptable instruments, right? good people that he could utilize but is not utilizing. But are there really, are there any really? And certainly the Israelites, like if you look at the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah, they couldn't correct or discipline each other. They were both corrupt, right? And if we apply that logic, you know, extend that logic, I think the conclusion is that there's really nobody, humanly speaking, who can be considered righteous or good or just in order to carry out God's, you know, justice. If everyone is sinful in the sight of God, including us, then are, are we saying that God can't use any human beings to accomplish his will? Well, that's not how he designed the world. That's not how he manages or, or runs the world. He chooses to use imperfect people to accomplish perfect purposes. So Habakkuk's argument, God, you're too pure to dare use the Babylonians against the Israelites. It misses the point that God's eyes are also too pure, right, to look upon the Israelites, to look upon Habakkuk. Right? So once you start having, applying this kind of relativistic ladder that I'm better than the bad Israelites and we're way better than the, the, the terrible Babylonians, right, you miss the point that we're sinners through and through that God uses us by his grace and if he uses it's hard to say still evil people by his grace we have no uh, you know, leg to stand on and that's the fallacy in our moral reasoning we tend to categorize people according to our relativistic morality ladder but God never subscribes to that worldview he looks upon all flesh as pitiful and sinful what he is trying to accomplish is to redeem as many as he can. In the Old Testament, that was the Israelites, right? God, as I stated last week, would almost hold nothing back in order to save them, even putting his own reputation at risk by bringing into play the Babylonians. 
Okay, one more kind of like what's going on in my brain, right? So even if we accept the premise, okay, God can't use, you know, sinful human beings. Let's just say that they're all disqualified and it'd be wrong for God to use them. Then we might say, okay, why can't he pick neutral means? Why can't he use natural disasters? Why can't he use um, 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 uh, miracles? You know, why can't he just do it himself uh, like that? But if we think about it, those are the very things that people criticize God's you know, goodness anyway. When someone dies of an earthquake or a fire or you know, a hurricane, right, we wonder, we go, is God allowing this? Is God evil? Is God punishing? It just leads to another you know, philosophical morass. We call it an act of God, right? And there's a legal term that, that means that we can't attribute it to any other fault. So we just kind of chalk it up to God. But it's not then a very far step to blame God for the loss of life that results from such an occurrence. You see where I'm getting at? It's not what God uses, I think, that really bothers us. It's the fact that God uh, uses people who we don't like to judge us, right? right? And I think that is where our kind of pride, our kind of, you know, we're our own sense of right, self-righteousness even, that's what's being uh, offended. Uh, for Habakkuk, the fact that God would deal with the Israelites in such a destructive manner causes him distress. And perhaps the comprehensiveness of the judgment is, is irksome uh, to him. You know, maybe Habakkuk, like I said, just wants the unjust you know, wicked elements to be somehow just, you know, evaporate just to kind of, you know, be removed. But again, how would that work? Uh, the way that God works is um, he uses all types, all, he can use all things, right, to accomplish his sovereign, just, uh, sovereign justice. So we have to be careful uh, as we complain or question God, that we're not throwing this relativistic um, scale of righteousness in God's face. Right? I'm, I'm sure the corrupt rulers of Jerusalem probably saw themselves as more righteous or less bad than others. I don't think they ever could have imagined that God would team up with the more sinful Babylonians to mete out punishment upon them. Okay, so the message Right? The, the, the lesson, the application to me in this is that we should worry less about the unrighteousness of others and consider our own righteousness before God. There's plenty of fodder there to work through. You know, get right with God. Work on our own holiness, our own purity. If God would use us when we've been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb, you know, praise Him. If God would use the unrighteous to help us to see or our unrighteousness or grow in righteousness, you know, praise him again. Yeah, it's just kind of my simple distillation of what to do with, with all my convoluted explanation or attempted explanation. Okay, third problem that Habakkuk seems to have with God is not that uh, not only are the unrighteous Babylonians being used as an instrument of God, but God gives them, gives these wicked and violent people too much freedom, <laughs> too much power, too much success. Right? And, you know, um, 
Habakkuk can't take that anymore. You know, why do they get to, you know, enjoy and, and, and party and, and, you know, uh, do all these terrible things? I mean, they're, they're so immoral. They seem to be prospering and having a grand old time, you know, asserting their unrighteousness all over the place. Right? They were a dynasty. They were a powerful empire. And all this at the expense of the so-called righteous. Now, this objection that the wicked are too prosperous, this is common to many people of faith. Yeah. For example, consider Psalm 73. A lot of Psalms in our service today, right? I'm going to read it because I tried to like cut out certain sections, or, but it just didn't work. So please bear with me and uh, yeah, let, listen to the, uh, the writer here. The composer. Psalm 73, verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the ignorant, of the arrogant, sorry. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a worrisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Yeah, there's more to it. I guess we look at it later. But you know, the psalmist almost stumbles when he envied the prosperity and ease of the wicked. But he's able to get a glimpse of the big picture. Right? When I went to the sanctuary, right, I discerned their end. And I think that's what Habakkuk needs as well. Maybe you and I need it too. So in the next chapter, chapter 2, God will talk about the grand scheme. Habakkuk's questions um, will seem to melt away um, thereafter. But in our verses today, our passage today, his heart is burdened, it's darkened by God's apparent, apparent leniency uh, towards the wickedest of people. Um, the, the joy, right, that, that seems to really upset him. The joy, so he's using an analogy about the fishermen, like the Babylonians are the, the bad fishermen. Uh, it really uh, bothers Habakkuk, right? Their apparent, like, um, freedom and success and excitement that the wicked find in their cruel actions. Yeah, that's too much for Habakkuk uh, to take. 
uh, he offers nine, <laughs> nine objections to their treacherous activities, right? and then God's toleration uh, of them. Okay, so let me go through them. The wicked fisherman pulls more, pulls up the uh, pulls up the more righteous up with hooks, um, catches them in his net, gathers them in his dragnet, rejoices, is glad, sacrifices to his net, burns incense to the dragnet, lives in luxury, and enjoys the choicest of food. Choicest food. Yeah, these are things that he sees with his own eyes, and they're troublesome. Right? And Habakkuk's, again, blaming God for this. It seems extremely unfair uh, that God would allow, maybe even condone it. Habakkuk even kind of pulls out the big guns, idolatry. He says, they sacrifice to the net, Lord. They, they, they worship their, their means, their, 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 their instruments, their, their, their technology. Right? So you know, he's talking about their power, their armies, their pride, their self. You know, they glory in that. How can you let that happen? You, you get upset when the Israelites, right? When we practice idolatry, what about these, you know, idolatrous, you know, maximally idolatrous people? But God seems to let them get away with it and then some. But maybe you can anticipate where I'm going with this. Right? The same argument that we talked about in terms of God being too holy and too pure, that could be made here as well, right? Uh, Habakkuk's blindness towards his own wickedness and that of the Israelites is, 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 is obvious to me. So if God was being too lenient toward anybody, it's actually the Israelites. You know, God had shown them mercy time and again, warning after warning, prophet after prophet. Habakkuk himself was one of those prophets who was extending God's leniency towards the Israelites. And, you know, God had a a long-term plan. God was going to bring the Israelites back one day. They were going to be given yet another chance. They would return to Jerusalem. They would rebuild the city walls. They would rebuild the temple uh, even. God was being completely lenient to them. And by, by extension, he's being completely lenient to us. On the other hand, the Babylonian Empire, once it falls... It's going to lie in ruins forever. It'll never recover. You know, God's judgment of them will be final. Ultimately, he shows them no clemency. So I feel like uh, Habakkuk's um, complaint about God is misplaced. Right? Uh, but just as he was kind of unable to see right, that there are no you know, pure instruments that God can use, not even himself, right? It's not that God was being overly lenient to the Babylonians. It was that, you know, God was being too gracious to the Israelites. And so um, Habakkuk is not able to kind of um, see what God is doing uh, clearly at the moment. And so his heart is lashing out 
his words are still pointed uh, at God. But somehow that's okay. Somehow that's okay. I think uh, something I want to keep re re reiterating is that I mean, one of the overarching messages of the book is that, you know, it's okay to engage God, even in a protest, even in a dialogue of protest. But God takes seriously, you know, our issues, our complaints, our pain. Yeah. All he asks is that we take him seriously in turn. Habakkuk is disturbed and perplexed. He can't understand what God is doing. He wants answers. Uh, it's a dialogue of protest, but it's also a dialogue of trust. And that's key. Right? Habakkuk has said his peace. Now he'll wait on God. We get that. I included chapter 2, verse 1, because I was still Habakkuk and before God responds. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So many questions. Does he occupy this perch in order to see when the Babylonians are coming? Is he looking for good news or bad news? How will God respond to him? What argument will Habakkuk grace in turn? Good questions that we will look at in the coming weeks. But the fact that you know Habakkuk is able to have a back and forth with God. Um, that means, right, that um, God is inviting us to uh, look to him, that he will show us, he will teach us. So let's do that. Time of reflection, let's uh, look to God. Even when things seem so incomprehensible, ask him to reveal and convict. Let's pray.